Hi, and welcome to the Circle of Film podcast. I'm Ryan, and join me as we step into the box office mojo top 100 films of all time in today's episode. What's this? What's this? It's supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. What is this? A whole new world. What? Before we jump into things, just a little update on uh, my injury here. I met with the doctors again this morning uh, who uh, took out the stitches, which was uh, pretty painful. They were, uh, they sunken into the skin pretty deep, uh, so it was a little difficult to pull those out, uh, but they, they did. So, you know, I'm now stitch-free. But I will be forced to wear this splint for the next four weeks, uh, which will greatly limit my ability to work on my spreadsheet, work on the website, things that I, since I've had all this extra time lately, I've you know wanted to do work on, uh, but I will have to postpone that for a while. Uh, but in other news, uh, I will be returning to work tonight, which is feels weird you know I don't I don't think I've ever wanted to go to work less than today uh, you know I won't be returning in the same capacity as I was when I was there before uh, I will be working in a modified position because of my inability to use my right hand and so as this is something that I've never done uh, in, an, in an actual capacity i'm not entirely sure uh, that i will enjoy it whatsoever but it is what i'm going to be doing uh, for four weeks at least uh, hopefully as i was told uh, after four weeks i will be able to get rid of the splint completely and then can uh, really start to to improve the mobility in my pinky and hopefully get it back to 100 percent so, yeah, that's uh, that's what's up with me and, and how things are going over here. But today's episode is not about me. It's about the box office mojo top 100. We last left off with number 41, The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. And uh, today we're going to go from 40 to 31. And, uh, yeah, so just a, just a warning looking at this one two three four five six seven of these films are from franchises uh, that are very very or maybe more one two three four five six seven yeah no seven seven of these are from big franchises one uh, is a newer movie that I think is gonna be a franchise or at least have a sequel um another already has a sequel but i wouldn't really call it a franchise and then the last is uh fuck i don't know maybe they're all just franchises whatever that's what all these movies seem to be at this point but we are marching our way up the ladder so without any further ado let's jump into number 40 this is a film released in 2009 
Uh, it grows to $934.4 million worldwide, $302 million domestically. It is the sixth film in this franchise, directed by David Yates, uh, and that is Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. This is my least favorite of the Harry Potter films. Uh, I think that it is the most lax in its... Uh, rev- uh, in its respect to the books and does not give Snape the respect that he deserves as being the titular Half-Blood Prince. And I think that's a shame. It is, in my opinion, a very important part of his character and an aspect to what makes him so complex. And I think that the David Yates and, and whoever wrote the screenplay, I don't, was it Roll? I don't think Rowling wrote the screenplays. Yeah, Steve Cloves wrote the, the screenplay, and I don't think he translated the Snape aspect of it very well. But that being said, it made a bundle of money, as all the Harry Potter films have done. And uh, I believe it was the first film in the franchise that Yates directed. No, Yates started with Order of the Phoenix, uh, with book five, This is book six, and then he finished out the series, directing both parts one and two of The Deathly Hallows, as well as Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. So he's got a lot of movies on this list for that very reason. Uh, Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, starring everybody that's been in a Harry Potter movie, uh, adding, for the most part, Jim Broadbent uh, to this one. And I think that's it for the most part. Uh, but, you know, I mean, it's an enjoyable movie. It's still Harry Potter. It doesn't drop the ball completely. It still feels like the same franchise it's been. And uh, to his credit, Yates uh, does do well in, in most of the other aspects. Uh, you know, he you know he does, he does happen to direct my two least favorite films in the franchise. But... Um, even said, like, I still think they're all at least really good movies and a, a fantastic franchise that never felt bad in each any of its movies. And so, yeah, that's Yates. And I'm going to cut this one short because number 39, <laughs> so number 40, Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, number 39, making $939.9 million, 292 of that domestically, coming out in 2007, is Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, also directed by David Yates. This is based on book five in the series. Uh, Yates's first foray into the film. Uh, I gave um, I gave Half-Blood Prince a 71, considerably lower than, than the rest of the franchise. But for Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, let me see here. Order of the Phoenix is my second favorite movie in the franchise. I loved Order of the Phoenix. Um, Let me see. I gave it approximately Order of an 85. So it's my second highest behind the uh, Prisoner of Azkaban. And I think that the biggest uh, hurdle that Order of the Phoenix had was dealing with Serious Black and the uh, reactions to his untimely demise and that 
I think, paid incredible dividends uh, in, in this movie. Yates directed that element uh, of the series beautifully well. Uh, the Dumbledore's army sequence, I think, was perfectly illustrated. This movie has the most terrifying villain uh, in Imelda Staunton as... Um, Oh, wow. Why can't I think of her name? I'll just highlight it. Let me see. Mella Staunton as Dolores Umbridge and has some pretty incredible Voldemort and Dumbledore action sequences, uh, which I thought were fantastic. Um, unlike Goblet of Fire, this pushes a lot of the sort of relationship drama into a secondary tier where I think Goblet of Fire elevated it a little too much for me but or the phoenix did a solid 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 job with everything in here a uh, lot very fast paced too given you know yates came in and he he really like picked up uh the speed and i think he did that to try and include more material in the films and i think it works in order of the phoenix uh best of all of all the four movies he directed so that's Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, number 39. Moving on to number 38. Uh, this is a 2003 film that was re-released later on, edging out Order of the Phoenix by just $400,000, give or take, is Finding Nemo. With $940.3 million, 380.8 domestic, directed by Andrew Stanton, Starring Albert Brooks, Ellen DeGeneres, Alexander Gould, Willem Dafoe, Brad Garrett, Allison Janney, among others. Uh, Finding Nemo is uh, another wildly successful Pixar film that I remember seeing at the theater when I was very, very young. Uh, I mean, I was, I guess, 12 at the time when it came. Uh, I was probably 11. I, don't, I think it came out before my birthday that year. It is my second favorite film of 2003 i think it is a fat fantastic film beautifully animated uh one of the few films that like i really dove into the special features and uh behind the scenes makings of uh pretty pretty in depth you know i, I went uh i learned a lot about this movie and i you know i remember watching it in class later like the following spring uh you know this this is just, I think, one of the best Pixar films uh, that's come out. It's a heartwarming story, and it's the only Pixar film that takes place in the ocean. Really? You know, even when you compare it to Finding Dory, which I think is a very lackluster and underwhelming sequel that doesn't really take place in the ocean that, that much. Uh, Finding Nemo has so, so many iconic characters, that, from the turtles to the seagulls to Gil to everyone in the fish tank, the starfish, the bubbles guy, um, to, <laughs> to Alice and Janney's character who keeps seeing her picture, her, seeing her reflection in the glass of the tank, to, uh, to introducing us to Dory, who Ellen Josh plays wonderfully. I, I don't think Dory quite carries a film on her own the same way. Albert Brooks as Marlin is great, even like down to the name Marlin, I love. Uh, and then there's Nemo, who who is 
uh, you know, his own character himself and grows considerably during the course of this movie. You've got the school of fish that give directions. You've got the jellyfish scene. You've got go, you know, go through, not over that cavern. Um, you've got the sharks, fish are friends, not food. You've got the big manta rays and the school of fish that he teaches and the butt, don't touch the butt, and you made me ink. Like, I, I haven't seen this movie in, in seven years, and I almost can probably tell you everything that happens in it. Uh, it is a fascinating and beautiful movie that uh, I think that everyone should really, really go and see. Especially if you haven't, I can't imagine like most people having not seen it. But if you haven't, you really should because it is a special, special film. So that's Finding Nemo at number 38. Number 37. Um, into, back into another franchise that we've talked about a lot. With $956 million, 255 of that domestically, released in 2014, the final film in this series uh, is The Hobbit, The Battle of the Five Armies, directed by Peter Jackson. This is, in my opinion, the only bad Lord of the Rings slash Hobbit film I've that was made by Peter Jackson. And essentially, it's because it's only a finale. There's no story. It's just the last finale. And it, it really was underwhelming. It doesn't do a lot with the story. It doesn't give you... I don't know. I mean, the character motivations are so slim, and the battle itself didn't wow me. I wasn't excited by it. I can't really remember anything about this movie. I saw it three year, less than three years ago. It doesn't stick with me. Um, about the only thing it does have going for it is just continuing this narrative. You know, it's it's like it's like a bad MCU film at this point, in in the sense that. Yeah, it's not great, but it does give you more time in this world with these characters. And, you know, so for me, it ended up getting just two stars. Uh, so that puts it at about a 44 for me. Um, and it didn't do that much better with critics either. Uh, it's, you know, I, I greatly enjoyed... The first two Hobbit movies, you know, I get they were both kind of stretched out and very thin, but I thought that for what they were, they still did a great job expanding and, and explaining things. And like all of the Lord of the Rings movies, they took their time to establish scenes and to give weight to these characters and, and make them seem like real people. But I think the Battle of the Armies just... Uh, where Return of the King culminated beautifully and say what you will about like 10 different endings, it worked. Battle of Five Armies doesn't have that and it doesn't, the weight of this movie is not felt, I don't think, because there's just, there's it, it doesn't have the same sense of majesty. There's no, I, I don't know, it's just I think this movie was trying to move too fast and that uh, ultimately ruined it, in my opinion. So, yeah, The Hobbit, starring Martin Freeman, Ian McKellen, Richard Armitage, Ken Stott, uh, Graham McTavish, James Nesbitt, Aidan Turner, uh, Orlando Bloom, Evangeline Lilly, Lee Pace, Kate Blanchett, Hugo Weaving, Christopher Lee, Ian Holm, 
all the normals. And uh, it's a shame, I think, because it really should have just been two movies, not three. So that's The Hobbit, The Battle of Five Armies, number 37. And <laughs> speaking of The Hobbit, you know, we move on to number 36, uh, which made just a couple million more at $958.4 million released in 2013. We have The Hobbit, The Desolation of Smaug. Um, this is my favorite of The Hobbit movies, actually. I think that it does a great job of adding in material. I remember reading The Hobbit a long time ago. I remember watching like a really old film version of The Hobbit. But for me, what I liked about this movie is that it kind of just like exactly the opposite of what I was talking about with The Battle of Five Armies is it takes its time. It, it allows the story to play out. It doesn't feel rushed, but it also doesn't feel delayed and you know, that's kind of the issue. I think there are so many elements to these movies and, and the pacing is generally very slow and it just, you know, it has to pick up when it needs to. You know, if you think back to the Battle of Helm's Deep in Two Towers, it's a pretty slowly paced battle, all things considered. Even amidst all the fighting, you still have a scene where Aragorn and Gimli are like, calmly deciding like how to get over onto that bridge at that one point or um you know you still get the banter between Legolas and Gimli about you know how many they've killed and they have the movie makes time for these moments these scenes and I think the Desolation of Smog does that really well it has a beautiful beautiful set piece and scene and it's probably not really a set piece probably mostly green screen uh with Martin Freeman and um and Benedict Cumberbatch as Smaug. And I think that that is one of the most breathtaking scenes in the franchise, like let alone just The Hobbit. Like that entire sequence is fantastic. But, uh, you know, it, it never quite rises to the level of the Lord of the Rings movies. It, it comes close, I think, but it, it just can't quite get there. I think that the issue primarily is the fact that you've got a completely different story being told here and I think it's not quite as strong a story partly because it's a one book broken up into three movies and so it's a much weaker story when you spread it out this way but also because I think that inherently I think Frodo is a much more sympathetic and um, painful character than Bilbo ever has been you know, I think it's far harder to see the sympathies for Bilbo, particularly since everyone watching these movies already saw the Lord of the Rings films and knows what happens when Bilbo gets old and has seen sort of evil Bilbo and, and how obsessed he is about the ring and things like that. So, uh, yeah, I, I like the movie quite a bit. Uh, I gave it... Hold on a sec. Smile. Or, or did I give it less? Hold on a second. I might have missed... Um, what's the first Hobbit called? Hobbit, An Unexpected Journey. It might actually be lower than Unexpected Journey. No, it's not. Okay. Yeah, I was right. Um, yeah, I mean, I gave it an 80. I, I gave it an 80 even. 
and I think it just barely tips over into the 80 range for me, so four stars. Um, and uh, we'll be talking about the first Hobbit movie at some point, and uh, we'll get there. <laughs> Don't worry. And there's still another Lord of the Rings movie on the docket as well. So that's number 36, The Hobbit, The Desolation of Smaug. Number 35, we head back to the Harry Potter franchise for the 2010 release that made $960.3 million, 296 of that domestically, and that is Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 1. This is the seventh movie based on the first half of the seventh book. I remember talking with friends prior to this movie coming out and wondering like where are they going to stop the like where are they going to cut this book into two halves and I had originally thought that they were going to um, sort of make it as soon as they got out of Gringotts uh, I thought that would be the end of it but the movie actually goes a little further than that and I think it succeeds and I think it picks the perfect moment to cut these two movies in half and that's uh, this book in half and that's right as Dobby dies. Uh, This is one of the more powerful deaths in the series, uh, you know, comparable, probably more comparable to Sirius than Dumbledore, simply for the amount of time we spend with these characters. But this movie gives us a lot of dark imagery, a lot of great character moments, and a lot of just... uh, just you know we finally get a movie that doesn't take place at hogwarts and that's pretty significant it was kind of scary to think like well what do we do when we don't have the a beautiful and and amazing background backdrop of hogwarts to support this movie and david yates to his credit uh did a fantastic job of making this world and and setting it up beautifully and he he really came through with with evoking the same sort of magic, the same sort of fantasy that we've seen when we're at Hogwarts, when we're at Hogsmeade, when we're in the Chamber of Secrets, when you know, uh, you know, when we're in Dumbledore's office talking to Dumbledore, when this is Sorting Hat and in the Great Hall, all these things sort of are so iconic. And it, you know, I'm sure Yates had to be a little concerned with. The idea of not being able to fall back on the charm of the school. But, uh, you know, just Harry, Hermione, and Ron in out in the woods and Gringotts, you know, it was nice to explore all these other places, you know, places we've sort of touched on. You know, we were in Gringotts in the first movie, and we finally came back, and we got to see a ton of things there. We got to do some more Polyjuice Potion and go into the Ministry, and we did a lot of cool, different, dangerous things that... Uh, this this series has more than earned in its running. And so I think Deathly Hallows Part 1 is one of the few films that has succeeded when cutting a book into two movies and uh, is, is a more than worthy uh, entry into the series. It is my third favorite of the movies and is one of the most uh, highest grossing uh it's uh it's it's very much going to um i don't know it's 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 a shame i think i i you know not to sort of 
play my hand, but I, I do think that part two is a letdown in a few senses. But I think part one lays the ground as best as they possibly could have, given the circumstances. And so Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, part one, number 35 of all time. Number 34, we jump into another big franchise. Uh, this is a film that came out in 2007. It made $963.4 million, 309 of those domestically. Directed by Gore Verbinski, uh, who just came out with A Cure for Wellness this year, and that's Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End. The Johnny Depp-led franchise uh, capped off its trilogy in 2007 with At World's End, and it uh, brought in a huge, huge amount of money that... uh, is is quite stunning uh you know the reviews for this were fine uh and it seemed to be it seemed as though this franchise had uh sort of run off course and it's a shame you know i love this franchise i've seen these movies a ton of times it got very mixed reviews on rotten tomatoes and i'm sure elsewhere as well and i particularly in particular, I very much like this movie. I, I think it's a lot of fun. I don't think I'd ever get tired of Johnny Depp's Jack Sparrow. I love the way that this movie uh, just incorporates Davy Jones. I love the drama between Davy Jones and Johnny Depp and and and, and uh, Captain Jack Sparrow. I love. Kira Knightley becoming King of the Pirates, and Jeffrey Rush is always fantastic as Barbosa. Um, Bill Nye as Davy Jones, I think, is great. You've got Tom Hollander at his most devious. Uh, Chow Yun Fat, I think, is more than capable of his role as Captain South Fang. And I just, I very much like this. I, I think that it's cool. I think it dives deeper and deeper into this mythos of the Pirates of the Caribbean. And I don't, I don't think it's as good as either of the other two films, but it is a very enjoyable movie for me. I, I can't help but enjoy it. Actually, amending that, it's actually not as good at or, or rather it is better than dead man's chest uh in in sort of a matrix way i think matrix is great matrix reloaded it was the first movie that veered off course and then revolutions tried to right the ship um pardon the pun and i think while i i don't necessarily think that revolutions quite got there i still i do think at world's end brought back the same sort of magic and enjoyment that the original pirates did much better than the second although i do enjoy all three movies quite a lot so that's pirates of the caribbean at world's end number 34 number 33 we move into a more recent film coming out just last year uh, making 966.6 million dollars 364 of that domestically this is a Disney film, one of the live-action Disney films that is that they've been coming out with, and that is The Jungle Book, directed by Jon Favreau, 
winning the Best Visual Effects Oscar this year, starring Neil Sethi, Bill Murray, Ben Kingsley, Idris Elba, Scarlett Johansson, Christopher Walken, Lupita Nyong'o, Giancarlo Esposito, Gary Shandling, Jon Favreau, Sam Raimi, Russell Peters, and a ton of others. I thought this movie was fantastic. It looks amazing. It is a lot darker, I think, than the animated film, which I have not seen in quite some time. And it it just it, it just really is a, it's terrifying. Like as a kids movie, uh, you know, Shere Khan, voiced by Idris Elba, is 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 just gruesome and. Uh, he he strikes fear into you. The way he kills, uh, what's his name, Akela. He kills Akela, and you know you really get a sense of of urgency and and power in this movie behind Shere Khan. And and uh, you know I was glad that they didn't take the exact same ending that they had in the animated version. I liked that Favreau took a little bit of creative license there. I was perfectly fine with the lack of musical numbers but I think that there were like I would have been happy if they just kept in bare necessities I, I think they should have taken out I want to be like you I don't think it was necessary and I think it just muddled the movie a little bit because it felt like it was trying to be two things at once and it isn't either of them perfectly because of that but I still had a ton of fun with this movie one of my favorite films from last year and specifically, it is number 17. So my 17th favorite film from last year, I gave it an 87. So very highly rated, very much enjoyed it. And if Favreau can keep this up with The Lion King, I will be very impressed. Uh, he's also been tapped to do the sequel to this movie. I have no idea what that's going to entail. I saw the animated sequel and it's awful. It, they sing the Bare Necessities like five times and it, it's incredibly like cash grabby. So I wasn't a big fan of that, but uh, for the most part, love this jungle, loved this jungle book. Really wish I'd gotten a chance to see it in theaters, but uh, unfortunately I was not able to go see it. I imagine it was probably a lot better in theaters than I than it was me seeing it at home. So that's The Jungle Book, 2016, number 33. Number 32, still sticking with the Disney films. This one's animated, though. Released in 1994 and re-released a few times after that, making $968.5 million, 422 of that domestically. We have... The animated The Lion King. Uh, Favreau, as I mentioned, set to direct the live-action version. This one was directed by Roger Allers and Rob Minkoff, starring Jonathan Taylor Thomas, Matthew Broderick, James Earl Jones, Jeremy Irons, Moira Kelly, Niketa Kalame, Nathan Lane, Ernie Sabella, Rowan Atkinson, Robert Guillaume, Guillaume Whoopi Goldberg, Cheech Marin, Jim Cummings, and Madge Sinclair, among others. Based on the based mostly on uh, the Shakespeare play Hamlet. This is, uh, I, in my opinion, a classic, a masterpiece of filmmaking, taking the most complex and, and arguably greatest story ever told 
and translated it into an animated kids movie that's also a musical with talking animals. It works and it brings this beautiful story to uh, an entire group of people that weren't experiencing it beforehand in a way that they can understand. It features one of the best voiced villains from of, of Scar and Jeremy Irons. It gives us Simba, who, like Hamlet, is a very, very troubled character, but in the context of the movie becomes a very sympathetic character as you get to see enough of the machinations working against him to truly see why he is acting the way he is, why he feels so upset, why he blames himself for the death of his father. Uh, James Earl Jones puts in, for me, the most uh, famous voice role of his career. I'm sure a lot of other people would cite Vader as being more uh, memorable, but for me, it will always be Mufasa. The music is impeccable from Circle of Life to Can You Feel the Love Tonight to Hakuna Matata to Just Want to Be King. Yeah, you know, there's, there's so many great ones. You've, uh, you've got Be Prepared, which is a perfect villain song. And it, it's, it just all comes together in the most wonderful and magical way possible. And that's Disney. You know, this is, you know, this is a huge, huge part of Disney's identity, this movie. Uh, it, it was, well, you know, it came on the heels of some of the most incredible Disney films ever made and was still uh, lauded for how amazing and, and groundbreaking it was. You know, this movie came out after uh, The Little Mermaid, which was a fantastic Disney movie. And, uh, you know, looking around at other films uh, that came out, in the same time period that we got here. Um, you know, you had Aladdin two years before this, which was fantastic, but uh, this, in my opinion, still exceeded Aladdin. You you had Beauty and the Beast in 1991, which got the first animated Best Picture nomination, and while The Lion King didn't receive the same honor, uh, you, you still had, in my opinion, a film that was greater than... Beauty and the Beast. Uh, the Lion King was nominated for four Oscars, winning score and best original score and best original song, for which it got three original song nominations. It was also uh, so that's those were all its nominations. Then um, it it really was just a, an iconic film, and it still is an iconic film. And I, I really hope that they they do it justice because it deserves every ounce of respect that it has earned. And so, The Lion King, number 31, 32, I'm sorry. And finally today, continuing this animated trend, uh, not Disney, however, we have a 2013 film that brought in $970.8 million, 368 of that domestically, from uh, DreamWorks, from Illumination, <laughs> my mistake, from Illumination, the sequel to, I don't know if it was on here already, let me see, 
Nope. This is the only film of its franchise. No, it's not. Uh, <laughs> the sequel to the original film, Despicable Me 2, directed by Pierre Coffin and Chris Renaud, starring uh, the voice talents of Steve Carell, Kristen Wiig, Benjamin Bratt, Miranda Cosgrove, Russell Brand, Ken Jeong, Steve Coogan, and others. Uh, in this film, Gru, played by Steve Carell, is recruited by the Anti-Villain League to help deal with a powerful new super criminal. They added Kristen Wiig to the franchise, thought that was a great decision. But they also highlighted the Minions far more, which is a bad decision because it led to the Minions movie, which is terrible. Uh, me 2, I think, is a significant step down from the first movie, but still an enjoyable movie in its own right. I did, uh, I gave it a three, three and a half stars out of five, which translates into a 73. So perfectly respectable, very good movie, far more entertaining than it has any right to be, but doesn't have the same magic and energy that the original had, you know, and and it's tough to do, especially with a, uh, you know, when you look at a film like Finding Nemo and Finding Dory, Finding Dory was good, uh, it got roughly the same rating Despicable Me 2 got, but they are both significant letdowns from their source material, from their original films. I think, uh, you know, I think that this film kind of contrast to Disney and Pixar caters more toward the younger audience that it is advertising toward, you know, highlighting the minions, highlighting the uh, silliness and, and sloppiness of these movies because the first film didn't do that as much. The first film was very respectful of the older members of its audience, the gave it, giving it, you know, it still had plenty of kid jokes in it, but it was also filled with, a lot of maturity for what it was. And I think that Despicable Me 2 loses a lot of that uh, in, in, in the transition. And so I, I think as good as Despicable Me 2 is, it does not quite reach the heights of the original. And that's fine. Uh, the third movie is coming out shortly. I'm perfectly okay with that. I think it'll be fun. Uh, I'm somewhat excited to see it because it looks, Trey Parker's character looks really funny. I'm really not at all interested in Gru having a twin brother. I think that's just stupid, but I don't know. It could work out. We're, who, who knows? I'll be going to see it, but uh, we'll see. Minions does not instill a lot of great hope in me because Minions was awful. And I'm sure there'll be plenty of Minion scenes in this movie in Despicable Me 3 as well. So, uh, yeah, so that's Despicable Me 2, number 31, and that's the last film on today's episode. Um, thank you so much for listening. Uh, next episode, we will finally uh, run into a movie that came out this year. So we will have a 2017 release in the next episode of Films. Next episode, we will also break into the grouping of films that have made a billion dollars worldwide uh we are very close to that number already and we will get very close to it um just three episodes left to go and i am i'm excited there's a lot lot to unpack here a lot to go through 
So thank you so much for listening. I appreciate each and every one of you guys. If you are interested in the podcast, want to learn more about it, want to see more episodes, you can check out the show notes or head over to circleoffilm.com where you can also find the Circle of Film Awards and the uh, Scavenger Hunt Superlatives. If you want to get in contact with me, either to express concerns, give me some comments, ask me some questions, feed me some answers, you can direct those things to circleoffilm at gmail.com. Thank you so much again, and as always, have a week. So long, Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. So long.